Hey, welcome to More Than Bread, a podcast that sincerely and deeply believes that few things will help you thrive in life more than letting your life be shaped by the Word of God. It's it's not just the rules and the regulations. It's not just the guidelines, though those are true and necessary for good life. But even more than that, it's the whisper of the Spirit of God breathing life into our souls. It's the way the Word of God leads us to know the God who is called the Word. It's hiding that Word in our hearts so that it it shapes our souls even when we're not reading it. When Paul says that the Scriptures are inspired by God, he literally says in the Greek that the words are God-breathed. And so I believe with all my heart that the breath of God comes to the people of God through the Word of God. Time spent in the Word with a heart that's soft will never be wasted time. So I'm Dan, a pastor in central Pennsylvania. You're Bible reader and guide, and we are on episode number 146 with a dive, a pause, a pondering into another psalm of ascent, Psalm 127. Now, Psalm 127 connects the blessings of God that come in in the major arenas of life. This is a very practical psalm, the the arenas of of work, family, and our home. It's a reminder that from the view of heaven, our efforts, no matter how full of heart and skill and hard work, our efforts are worth less, not worthless, but worth less than they could be, would be if God was involved. You know, every Sunday, a group of men, part of what I call my prayer shield, they gather around me before I preach and they pray for me. And and often as I'm closing in prayer, I'll say something like this, God, the very fact that we are coming to you in prayer is an affirmation, a reminder to us that we know that in the areas that matter to us the very most, we will not see what we hope to see happen if you're not in it, if your hand is not upon us. And that's really the essence of this psalm. So listen as I read Psalm 127 from the New Living Translation. The psalmist writes, Unless the Lord builds a house, the work of the builders is wasted. Unless the Lord protects a city, guarding it with sentries will do no good. It's useless for you to work so hard from early morning until late at night, anxiously working for food to eat, for God gives rest to his loved ones. Children are a gift from the Lord. They are a reward from him. Children born to a young man are like arrows in a warrior's hands. How joyful is the man whose quiver is full of them. Quiver is full of kids. He will not be put to shame when he confronts his accusers at the city gates. See, your house in the city where you live, your work, what you do, your family, who you do it with and for. I mean, what could be more important than these three arenas of life, work, home, and family? When it comes to these arenas, it seems like there are those who work and build and live like every good thing depends on them, their hard work, their skill, their effort. And then there are those who work like it doesn't matter what they do. And and I think Psalm 127 brings a balance. There's a work of building that we must do. There's a guarding that needs to happen. There's, There's a family that must be protected from the accusers. And it is only useless work if the Lord isn't in it. It reminds me of this moment in the book of Nehemiah. They're they're trying to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. If you know the book of Nehemiah, the story of Nehemiah in the Old Testament, they're, they've gone back and they're trying to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And but they have an enemy, and and this enemy doesn't want Jerusalem to to be restored. And the enemy is threatening to attack. In other words, there's a city to guard, and there are families to protect. And as an aside, can I just make it really clear? This is true of us today. We have an enemy that wants to destroy us. I'm I'm pretty old-fashioned when it comes to this truth. 
In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul tells us that we are in a battle. It's not just Old Testament stuff. It's not just, you know, over in Ukraine and, and Myanmar. It's, 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 it's us. We're in a battle. But it's not a battle against flesh and blood. It's a battle against the evil forces, spiritual forces of darkness in heavenly places. And if you, as a Christ follower, a Jesus apprentice, work to build your home and guard your city without understanding that we have an enemy that wants to destroy us, then we'll never accomplish the mission God has given us. See, our our enemy's endgame is to destroy us, to destroy the church. His enemy is not our nation. It's not a political party. He's after the church. If, If he can divide us, we diminish the glory of Christ, and we leave the world wondering if the Father sent the Son. Those are Jesus' words in John 17. I'm telling you, we have an enemy who is doing everything he can to keep us from rebuilding our neighborhoods, our families, and the church. John Eldridge writes, I love this quote, he says, For when we were born, we were born into the midst of a great story, begun before the dawn of time, a story of adventure, of risk and loss, heroism and betrayal, a story where good is warring against evil and danger lurks around every corner and glorious deeds wait to be done. Think of all those stories, he writes, think of all those stories you've ever loved There's a reason they stirred your heart. They've been trying to tell you about the true epic ever since you were young. There is a larger story, he writes. And you, listen to me, if you hear my voice, this you is you. You have a role to play. It's the epic battle between good God and evil, between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. See, see, the gospel is a real-life epic story, and every epic story has a villain in this battle between good and evil. Perhaps one of the great problems for our movement today, the movement of, of Jesus' apprentices today, is that for the last few decades, the invitation to follow Jesus has read more like a, a travel agency brochure than an enlistment campaign. Right? We, we often hear some form of, come see Jesus and he'll lead you to the life of your dreams. Come see Jesus and be happy. Life is easier in Jesus' land. R- rarely do we hear, come follow Jesus and enlist in the battle against evil for good. Come fight for the heart of your king or die trying. Uh, a few years ago, um, when COVID first was getting started, I ran across a series of letters from the Church of Iran to the Church of America, and they made such an impact on me that I can't forget them. It, it stirred up my heart because I recognize, we, we recognize that there's more, that there's an urgency to life because of the battle. One section of the letter contained these words, and, and if you don't know this, the, the church is growing in amazing ways in Iran. And, and here's what the letter said. Incredible things are happening in Iran by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we don't have the freedom that you have in America. But I'll tell you this, I'll take the Islamic regime over democratic freedom any day. Why? Because the Spirit is breathing on the persecution that we are enduring as disciples of Jesus. And the gospel is sweeping through our country with more power than COVID-19. Iranians are, are going to crowd out the sea of glass, the letter says. We're, we're going to need a lot of seats at the table in heaven. Fight the good fight. So many of you are willing to die in the proverbial hill for what you believe. And I love this, the, the letter writer says. But die on the right hill. So this, this story in Nehemiah chapter 4 and verses 8 and 9 of Nehemiah 4 says, They all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion. This is Nehemiah talking. He says, But we prayed to our God and we guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. We prayed and we guarded. We prayed and we guarded. Don't miss this. Nehemiah called the people to pray to God and guard the city. Not either or, both and. 
And then in verse 14, Nehemiah says, I called together the nobles and the rest of the people, and I said to them, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. You see, there's the same pattern. Nehemiah calls the people to remember the Lord and fight for your family. Remember the Lord and fight for your family. And then again in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 4, he says, Then I explained to the nobles and the officials and all the people, the work is very spread out and we're widely separated from each other along the wall. So when you hear the blast of the trumpet, when you hear the blast of the trumpet, rush to wherever it is it is sounding and then God will fight for us. See, there it is again. Rush to the battle and God will fight for us. Pray and guard the city. Remember the Lord and fight for your family. Rush to the battle and God will fight for you. It's not an either or, it's a both and. It's not a passive resignation to the trouble in our story. It's an active realization that if God is the author of my story, then trouble is not the story of my life. And you know what? God is not only the author of your story, he's the hero. I've heard it said that we should pray like it depends on God and work like it depends on us. But, you know, I find that when I'm working like it depends on me, I rarely pray like it depends on God. Perhaps we also need to figure out what it looks like to work like it depends on God. Unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord guards the city. I don't know, perhaps we need to come to God with this posture of brokenness, realizing that in the work, the best thing I bring to the table is my desperate dependency on God. Not not my skills, not my capacities. Rebuilding always begins with be still and know that I am God. Some of you know this part of my story. During the course of the coronavirus season, God gave me three words to convict, encourage, and guide me. And the first word was while I had COVID-19. And the word was simply, be still. Let your hands grow slack. Quit trying to control what you can't control. I I had this sense of God saying to me, I've got this. Eyes on me. What I've put in your heart, I'm doing. Surrender control. The second word happened during the day surrounding George Floyd's death. We were in Minnesota for our granddaughter Maisie's birth, and, and God asked me to surrender the crowds. Surrender control. Surrender the crowds. And the third word came a few weeks later, surrender your voice. Now, for a leader who loves to preach to the crowds, be still, surrender the crowds, and surrender your voice. My goodness, I I didn't make those up. Those are not the words that I, I wanted. But at every point, I've had this growing conviction that those words have intention beyond me, that it's not just what he's doing in me, but that that he's doing something in us so that he can do something through us. I, I do believe that a move of God is coming, one that will go beyond what we've asked for or imagined. And so I have not stopped praying, Lord, would you do it again? What you did in Nehemiah's day that amazed the people, would you do it again? What you did with Moses and the people of God, oh, do it again, Lord. What you promised to Ezekiel as he looked out over the valley of dry bones. God, would you breathe your breath of life into your church again? What you did through that ragtag group of first Jesus apprentices when they became known as the people who turned the world upside down, would you do it again? I love the story of J. Edwin Orr. Orr was one of the great revival historians of all time, and God put such a passion on his heart for revival. Back in the 1940s, Orr was a professor at Wheaton College, and he took a group of students to England to study revival. One of their stops was the Epworth Rectory where John Wesley had lived, where he was based. 
They, they spent time in his study. It's basically a, a museum, so all his books were there. The desk where he wrote his revival messages and, and gave leadership to a great move of God that in time became the Methodist Church. They, they went upstairs to Wesley's living quarters, and, and before they left, someone, someone noticed that, that the, there were these two worn, smooth impressions in the wooden floor right beside the bed. Or said that was Wesley. Wesley would, would kneel there every morning for prayer, and for hours he, he would pray by his bedside, praying for his church, praying for his people, praying for revival. They left the bedroom and they went back to the bus, but as they were getting on the bus, he noticed that one student was missing. He, he went looking for him. He went back upstairs in this, this place where Wesley lived, and, and he found that student kneeling in the same knee holes that Wesley wore into the wooden floor, praying with his face on the bed, oh, Lord, would you do it again? Would you do it again? And Orr placed a hand on the student's shoulder and said gently, come on, Billy, we have to go. And at his words, Billy Graham got up off of his knees and joined the others on the bus. And God did it again in Graham's life. And as I was thinking through this psalm and this message, I prayed that prayer, God, would you do it again? Would you do it again? And, and you know what? Every time I've, 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 I've prayed that prayer, there'll be this, this sweet, convicting sense of Jesus saying, and Dan, will you join me? God, would you do it again? Dan, will you join me? You understand, run to the battle and the Lord will fight for you. Pray and do the work. Build, guard, protect, but realize how brokenly dependent you are upon God. I I think that's the same response Jesus is offering us today. If we want to see the do-it-agains, we need to take the same posture that Wesley and Graham did, the, the same posture that Nehemiah did, the same posture as the psalmist in Psalm 127. We cannot stand in his power if we will not kneel in his presence. We need to pray, and we need to do the work. And I can't leave, we can't leave this psalm without realizing why is it that we do what we do? Why do we pray like we pray? Why do we pray fervently and work urgently? Why do we do it? We do it for the kids. We do it for the next generation. They are a precious gift from God. They are a blessing. They are our heritage. We do it for the kids. Now, I don't care if you have kids. We all have kids. We do it for the kids. Children are a gift from God. Is there work for us to do to serve the next generation? Yes, of course there is. In fact, there's work that we've neglected because we lost sight at some point of the fact that it's for the kids, it's, it's for the next generation. But, but do we need desperately, do we desperately need God as we work? Oh my, do we? For the last 20 plus years, longer than some of you have been alive There's been no greater prayer in my heart than the prayer for revival, the prayer for a mighty move of God here in Central PA at Penn State University and and every college, high school, and middle school in Central PA. And you know, for the last decade or so, God has led me to study the life of Moses. And I'll be honest, I have a growing suspicion that if revival is the promised land, I'm going to see it but not live in it. I'm saying that because God is helping me see that that while Moses didn't get to live in the land, he, he was a friend of the Father, and nothing matters more. But I believe with all my heart 
if you're listening to me as as someone who's a part of the younger generation, the next generation, I, I believe with all my heart that you will that you will live in the land of revival, that God is offering that to you, the next generation. I've always had a sense of urgency. I, I consider it a gift, even a requirement for leadership. Urgency is the outworking of passion. And and I was thinking about this opportunity to share with you, maybe even just a, a couple of you who are who are younger, who are listening to this podcast. And I, I just, I, I, I feel like, I feel like God just wants me to tell you, you are not the church of tomorrow. You are not the dreams that are yet to be. You are the church of today. You are the dreams that God is releasing now. And if you will consecrate yourself to follow Jesus, if you will worship him with a whole heart and a willing mind, you will find him. So seek him and do the work. Listen, the Lord has chosen you to do a great work. Be strong and do it. Be the ones that turn your heart, the heart of your generation back to God. Be the ones who feed kids around the world. Be the ones who serve city and love those who despise you. Be the ones who become so like Jesus that no matter where you go, there he is. And if you do that, you will find that his kingdom is common. Down here has become more like up there than we could ever imagine. Listen once more as I read Psalm 127, this time from Eugene Peterson's The Message. If God doesn't build the house, the builders only build shacks. If God doesn't guard the city, the night watchman might as well nap. It's useless to rise early and go to bed late and work your worried fingers to the bone. Do you, do you know, don't you know that he enjoys giving rest to those he loves? Don't you see that children are God's best gift? The fruit of the womb, his generous legacy, like a warrior's fistful of arrows are the children of a vigorous youth. Oh, how blessed are you parents with your quivers full of children. Your enemies don't stand a chance against you. You'll sweep them right off your doorstep. Would you pray with me? Father, I, I pray first of all for every, every person, I don't know, under the age of 25, under the age of 30, who's listening God, I, I pray that you would pour your spirit out upon them. I pray that you would that you would give birth in their hearts to a do-it-again prayer. I pray that they would consecrate themselves to you, that they would they would follow wholeheartedly, passionately after you, that they would worship and they would pray, that they would do the work and pray, that they would remember the Lord and run to the battle. God, I thank you for what you're doing in the next generation. I thank you for what you're going to do in the years and the decades to come. And God, with all my heart, I just pray, would you do it again? What we've heard of you doing, would you do it again? Would you give us a, a courageous heart to do what we need to do, but would you give us also a passionate sense of desperation, expectant hope, groaning hope that would cause us to, to depend on you like we've never depended on you before? And we ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.